and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Mabel Romero, Assistant Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. My guest is Sarah Sherman-Stokes, Clinical Instructor and Lecturer in Law and Associate Director of the Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Program at Boston University School of Law. Today we'll be discussing her article, Third Country Deportation, forthcoming in the Indiana Law Review this spring. So welcome back to the show, Sarah, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So I'm really excited to have the chance to discuss this article with you because it it describes some phenomena that I wasn't even aware existed. Um, and I'm sure that's true for a lot of our listeners. So I want to start off with getting down to brass tacks, essentially. Um, so, you know, I think anyone paying attention to the news is really aware that there are large scale deportations of non-citizens from the United States happening, um, that they seem to be picking up in pace. Um, although I imagine that a lot of people who, you know, think about these deportations, they assume that there's some sort of orderly process, including, you know, some sort of, pro- you know, uh, an appearance in court, maybe there's an attorney that helps out or something like that. Um, but really, you introduce this idea of shadow deportation and third country deportation. What, what do we mean by shadow deportation here? Yeah, thanks so much. And I think um, I really appreciate you giving us a moment to kind of situate this in the larger context of detention and deportation, um, because this is really part of a growing trend of deportations that happen outside the courtroom. And I should start by saying, you know, there's about 54,000 people detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement um, on any given day in the United States. And I say people because some of those are U.S. citizens who are erroneously detained, but for the most part, they are non-citizens. Um, there are estimates that about 6,000 of those in detention, so about 11% of folks in custody, are survivors of torture. Now, that's self-reported, so it's probably underreported. Um, but we're talking about people who are extraordinarily vulnerable. Um, and I'm happy to disabuse people of the notion that there is a fair and orderly process um, that involves a lawyer. <laughs> um, most folks who are facing deportation do not have a lawyer. You have a right to a lawyer in removal proceedings if you can afford one, um, which means that most people either rely on pro bono legal services. And of course, there aren't quite enough pro bono lawyers um, to to provide everyone with with legal services or or law school clinics like the one that I help run here at Boston University Law School, where we represent folks pro bono who are facing deportation. So you've got a lot of really vulnerable people, survivors of torture and persecution who are facing deportation largely alone. And what this article sets out to do is kind of explore um, this this brand of what I call shadow deportation. Um, There are many brands of shadow deportation. This is just one. There's also reinstatement of removal, expedited removal. These are processes of deportation that happen outside the courtroom and without the oversight of a judge. And the one that I'm focusing on is third country deportation, which really briefly put um, is when Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, seeks to remove a person to a third country that is not the United States and not that person's country of nationality after a judge has found that that person can't go back to their country of nationality because they will be tortured there. Okay, so third country deportation, you're talking about sending people to a country that they're not from, have possibly never been to, just kind of just a random completely different location then, it sounds like. Yeah, it could be. So I I can give you, I think, you know, I tell my students all the time that stories are what get us to stop and actually pay attention. It's one thing to talk about the law, but um, it's much more compelling to actually put a face to um, 
the, the law and its impact. So I'll just mention um, the story that I start my article with, which is the story of Peter. Um, that's the name I give him. He's given me permission to tell his story with some um, slightly altered details to uh, you know, more or less protect his identity. Um, but Peter is a young man from Sudan. Um, he was born in Khartoum, Sudan, um, came to the United States as a refugee after enduring quite a bit of trauma in Sudan um, and persecution by the government. Um, and came to the U.S. and really struggled as a refugee teenager, struggled with substance dependence and untreated PTSD, panic attacks and trauma, and got into trouble uh, with the law as a result. And he was facing deportation. And years ago, I represented Peter and I won uh, him uh, relief under the Convention Against Torture from Sudan. The, the immigration judge found that he would be tortured in Sudan uh, if he were sent there. And so then Peter got released from detention and went about his life. He has a U.S. citizen partner, two U.S. citizen children. Um, but one day, uh, about uh, 15 months ago, he was taking out the trash at his house with his partner and his two kids. And ICE agents surrounded him and said, hey, we're sending you to South Sudan now. Now, Peter has never been to South Sudan. Um, he wasn't born there. Uh, he's never stepped foot there. Um, it only became a country in the last few years. Um, and he also was terrified to return there. So ICE was prepared to send him to, to South Sudan without ever seeing a judge, without any process whatsoever to determine whether he would also be at risk of harm or torture there. Um, had a lawyer not gotten involved, that's exactly what would have happened. They would have put him on a plane to South Sudan without any kind of pro judicial process. So they, they tried to take him to South Sudan. Um after you already got him relief under the Convention Against Torture, correct? That's right. So he had had relief under the Convention Against Torture for about, um, let's see, uh, almost a decade, seven or eight years. Um, and um, and then ICE decided um, they had had enough of him and wanted to try to send him to a third country. Now, it just so happens that South Sudan is, you know, this new country next door to Sudan. And in fact, we're seeing a lot of um, folks in similar situations to Peter, who ICE is trying to send to South Sudan. Um, but, but they really could have tried to send him anywhere. Um, and without our intervention, they probably would have done so. So can you tell us a bit more about this Convention Against Torture? I, I know that it, we've ratified it. It's taken a while to actually set up the apparatuses such that we can even comply with it whatsoever. Um, <laughs> what is this thing? Yeah, totally. Um, so, so CAT, CAT or the Convention Against Torture is this 35-year-old watershed international human rights treaty was negotiated and ratified by the United States. Um, it it uh, wasn't implemented until 1998. Um, it wasn't self-executing. And so Congress had to pass the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring Act or FARA to implement the CAT. For our purposes, the most relevant part of the CAT is Article 3.1 which reads, no state party shall expel or return or extradite a person to another state where there are substantial grounds for believing that he or she would be in danger of being subject to torture. Um, basically, what it comes down to is that because we're a signatory to this treaty, we don't remove non-citizens to places where it's more likely than not that they will be tortured. Um, however, once CAT has been granted, the regulations do permit the government to remove a non-citizen to a third country. Um, but they don't spell out any process for doing so. <laughs> so um, although they allow that, that a non-citizen can be removed to a third country, uh, they don't tell us how that should be done or what safeguards should be put in place, what process should be offered, um, uh, nothing like that. 
So essentially, ICE has this giant loophole by way of this regulation, allowing them to pick up people and to try to remove them extrajudicially with no guidance from anything else, no formalized processes or anything like that. That's sure what it feels like. Um, And I I should note that, you know, this is increasingly important um, in in this particular political moment. And, And not just because under the current president, we see an uptick in the number of folks being detained and subject to deportation. Um, in fact, we've been seeing that growth for years, including under the Obama administration. I think it's really important we talk about the fact that what's happening under Trump is not happening in a vacuum. It's the sort of inevitable um, trajectory that was set that has been set out by previous presidents, by Clinton, by Obama. Um, this detention and deportation machine was not built uh, in a day or even two years. It's longstanding. Um, but But CAT is particularly important and indeed, I would say, vital right now, because what we're seeing by this administration are unrelenting attacks on the asylum process. Um, So asylum has gotten much more difficult to obtain. And asylum is a discretionary form of relief um, for people who are fleeing, in some cases, torture or or persecution. Um, And so if people are denied asylum as a matter of discretion or for any number of reasons, including recent case law from this uh, attorney general um, or because of the asylum ban or metering at the southern border, all these different sort of uh, insidious attacks on the asylum process. If they can't get asylum, they're left ostensibly with relief under the Convention Against Torture. So now if relief under the Convention Against Torture isn't as protective as we thought it was, um, we're talking about vulnerable people becoming even more vulnerable. So CAT really is sort of a lifeline for those people who've been denied asylum then? That's correct. It can be, um, especially because it's not discretionary in the way that asylum is. CAT is mandatory. If it's found that uh, it's more likely than not that you'll be tortured in your home country, there, there is no discretion. A judge has to grant you relief under the Convention Against Torture. So how do we go about defining torture for purposes of CAT? That's a great question. Um, so there's been some... Um, debate about um, what constitutes torture, but essentially under CAT, torture is defined as an act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or a third person information or a confession, punishing him for an act he or a third person has committed, intimidating or coercing him, when such pain or suffering is inflicted by or at the instigation of or with the consent or acquiescence of a public official or another person acting in an official capacity. So that's that's the formal definition. But ostensibly what it comes down to is um, it is an some some act by by which severe pain or suffering um, is inflicted, usually by a government official or someone acting in an official capacity um, for a specific in, in, intent. Um, so that's ostensibly what has to be shown. What, what it would look like, just to give you sort of um, more clarity on what it might look like, in Peter's case, what we're arguing is that the government of South Sudan will detain him as soon as he arrives in South Sudan and will torture or kill him in their custody. Um, in this case, because of his ethnicity, um, but it really could be for any reason or no reason at all. So the evidentiary burden that, you know, non-citizens need to show to claim cat relief is, I mean, it shouldn't be that onerous though, right? It's not like, you know, it's not like um, proof beyond a reasonable reasonable doubt. It's more likely than not. So 
you know, it, it seems like this should be something that's much more available to non-citizens and easier to get. And um, have, have there been any struggles with courts interpreting what torture means, such that it's limited um, this relief to people or anything like that? That's a great question. Um, it actually is pretty hard to get. So, in order to get, to give you an, uh, to give you an example, to, to get asylum, you have to show a one in ten chance, a ten percent chance that you will be persecuted on account of one of five protected grounds. So, you really, it's a really low um, uh, hurdle to clear for a non-citizen. Of course, it's very hard for many other reasons. Um, by comparison, CAT, as you mentioned, is more likely than not. So that's, you know, 50.1% or um, different courts have interpreted it slightly differently. Um, but but it is often hard because it's often hard to show that, um, for example, what you're going to suffer uh, constitutes torture or that you're going to be or that that act is going to be committed by someone in government or someone acting uh, in an official capacity. Um, and usually what it requires a respondent to do is to get country expert information. So maybe country reports um, that spell out what happens to people like this person uh, when they're deported, um, or maybe they have to get an academic or a journalist or a politician or somebody to come testify about what happens um, for folks like this non-citizen. And all of that requires resources. So if you're unrepresented, if you don't have access to counsel, if you're detained in a remote detention center where you don't have use of a computer or the internet, it's nearly impossible to get access to all of the corroborating information you would need to make your case. That sounds pretty much near impossible then if you don't have resources, if you don't have connections to attorneys and the like. Um, so what, what kinds of relief are available to people under CAT? I think that there are two, right? That's right. There are two. There's deferral under CAT and withholding of removal under CAT. Um, so, you know, ostensibly you actually get ordered removed by the judge um, and then your your removal is either withheld or deferred. And without getting too much sort of in the weeds here, um, there are some differences in terms of who is eligible for each of those, but both of them are, are mandatory um, if, if the standard is met. But then it sounds that once CAT is granted and that sort of relief has been granted, you know, just to return to this removal to a third country, um, the government might have the chance to just take a non-citizen and take them to this third country like you were talking about. Um, under, um, you'll have to refresh my recollection uh, under what provisions that's available, but, it, it, you know, it, essentially they're, you know, uh, they're allowed to do this, um, remove someone to a third country, but then there are no other outlines of any procedures or protocols for actually doing that, correct? That's correct. So under 8 CFR 208.16 F, um, the, the regulations say that nothing in this section shall prevent the service from removing a non-citizen to a third country other than the country to which removal has been withheld or deferred. So the fact that this is possible is, is not in dispute. Um, but the question is, what is the procedure or protocol for carrying out this option? Um, and you can't, one sort of logistically, you can't raise a defense to third country removal at the time of your actual hearing because you don't even know what country ICE or DHS is seeking to remove you to until after you've been granted relief to your to your country of nationality or citizenship and proceedings are closed, right? So if I tried to introduce, for example, if I had a client who was seeking CAT from, um, let's say, Ethiopia, and, uh, and later on DHS tried to remove him to Kenya, 
I couldn't have raised any defenses to that at the hearing because I didn't know where the government was going to try to remove him at that time. And if I had tried to speculate, a judge surely would have said that that information was irrelevant and would have um, would not have admitted that information into evidence. Um, so it puts non-citizens, even when they have lawyers, really in a bind because we're trying to speculate about what DHS may or may not do. Um, and, you know, we can't offer irrelevant and inadmissible evidence in a court proceeding. Um, and so we're kind of stymied until after the proceeding is concluded. And then hopefully um, we somehow get word of what DHS is trying to do. Um, but again, those are a lot of ifs in a system where people are not guaranteed a right to counsel. I can't believe that this is so very speculative. I, I feel like in any other context, this would be very obviously <laughs> a clear um, procedural due process violation. Um, not having noticed, not being able to defend yourself against, you know, what might be coming down the chute um, and having to really guess as to what, you know, DHS is going to do. Um, I'm not exactly sure how people are supposed to handle that with so little guidance. Um, And it it seems that people have really been struggling trying to figure out, okay, what exactly can we do mounting defenses to this? How exactly can we combat this? Um, from what I've been able to glean, you know, doing my own research, it seems like there's even very little that's even been written about this third country deportation process. Um, so it's exciting to see this paper really t- filling in that void and, uh, you know, approaching this problem. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah I, I should say, I, I think that's right. There, there really isn't very much written, if really anything written about this sort of third country deportation problem. Although, you know, it's, I should note that I'm, I am building on the work of other um, really phenomenal scholars that have looked at these sort of shadow deportations. Um, so folks like Shoba Wadia um, and Mary Holper um, and Jill Family and others who have written, uh, uh, Lindsay Harris and others who have written about expedited removal and sort of removal that happens in the shadows outside of a formal court process. I think what we're seeing is sort of this menu of options that's available or this sort of increasing in number menu of options that's available to DHS when they want to do something outside the purview of a court or a judge. Um, And, you know, I think that's especially dangerous in this context when we're talking about people who, you know, for whom English is not typically their first language. Um, The immigration statute is hard enough to navigate when English is your first language. Um, It's hard enough for lawyers, skilled lawyers to navigate. We're asking people who have you know, been survivors of torture and trauma to navigate this really complicated system, usually on their own. Um, and, and there isn't a lot written about it. Now, courts have opined a little on this. Um, and when they weigh in, they almost uniformly say, you know, DHS is kind of engaging in bad behavior. Um, now, the contexts are slightly different than than Peter's story, but very similar for example, um, in a Ninth Circuit case, DHS sort of last minute designated a new country of removal in the proceeding. And even that, the Ninth Circuit said, was totally impermissible. Um, this happened, this came up in a Seventh Circuit case as well, um, where uh, the, the, the Seventh Circuit said this was a fundamental failure of due process. So to your point about this being an obvious due process violation, um, and, and in another case in the Seventh Circuit, um, the the court again said um, the government was doing a sort of end run around the law, waiting to raise the prospect of third country removal until the non-citizen had no process by which to contest it. Um, 
So we're seeing it percolate up to the circuit courts here and there. Um, but I do think it's one of those things that um, is, is certainly happening a lot more than we know, just because of the nature of um, anything that happens in the shadows. We don't know about it um, because it's happening in the shadows. Well, I'm glad to see at least that some of this is coming to light along with the the difficulty that respondents have because they have so little in the way of resources or, you know, kind of uh, experience or sophistication in the system or even knowing how to approach uh, these problems. Um, So, you know, there might be, your paper really does outline though some, at least some limited forms of recourse that some of these respondents might take. So could you maybe go over those for us and some of the difficulties even in using these? Certainly. So, um, yeah, so if I first sketch out what I think are some some existing remedies um, that respondents, that non-citizens might pursue, again, a, a lot of these depend on having access to counsel, which I just have to keep sort of reiterating is, is not a, um, a given or a guarantee by any means. Um, but at least hypothetically, um, some of the mechanisms available would be uh, a motion to reopen or reconsider um, uh, the, the case. Um, you know, a motion to reopen requires you to state, you know, new facts that'll be proven at a hearing and have it, you know, be supported by, by affidavits or other evidence. Um, in the case of Peter, that's exactly what we did. We filed a motion to reopen. Um, there are limits on motions to reopen. There are time and number limits on motions to reopen. Um, and in fact, even though Peter had what I hope was, you know, competent legal counsel, um, you know, our initial motion to reopen was denied and we had to actually go up to the Board of Immigration Appeals. So, you know, um, which required Peter to spend many months away from his family in detention while we litigated this. And we eventually did get the case reopened, but it took, you know, tenacity on the part of uh, his lawyers, but more importantly, patience on the part of Peter, who was, um, you know, waiting in detention uh, for a really long time, wondering whether this was going to work. Um, the, the other thing that folks can do are habeas petitions um, to challenge the legality of deportation. You know, federal district courts have jurisdiction to hear habeas claims by by non-citizens that are contesting the lawfulness of their detention. Um, but again, we're talking about mostly pro se litigants. And it's also worth noting that in Peter's case, we have filed multiple habeas claims and yet he remains detained. And, and I don't think that's, that's, that's due to our um, ineptitude. It's that the stack is really... Um, the deck is really stacked against Peter um, in this regard. Um, so these solutions have been, you know, in some ways both inadequate and ineffective um, for for Peter. And I know that looking at the paper, um, you know, this is, you know, a chunk of your paper describing what pro se respondents seeking relief really run into. And, you know, it's a description of immigration law, but, you know, we could certainly apply this, I think, to seeking habeas relief too. Uh, you know, it is, notoriously complex, like you say. You could describe it as labyrinthine, hyper-technical, and known to cause waste, delay, and confusion for the government and petitioners alike. Um, so it is really, it's very troubling to me, and I'm sure a lot of listeners out there to hear how little guidance there is and how little help some of these respondents might have. Um, what should we be doing differently in this country then, um, given, you know, our, our you know, being a party to CAT, um, you know, our due process requirements in this country, um, sort of the, you know, international law obligations that we've decided to take on in the past. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, as will come as no su- 
surprise, the article kind of concludes with with basically saying that our domestic and international legal obligations require us to do more than we're doing um, as a party to CAT uh, to ensure you know that we're providing the procedural protections that that non-citizens um, are required to have. And they also talk about some due process requirements and, and protections under the, the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act. Um, in the end, what I really come down to um, is, is fairly simple and probably unsurprising on some level, which, you know, and, and could really be woven into a Matthews analysis, but is really that um, we need notice to the respondent, which seems, you know, um, pretty obvious, right? If if the government is going to try to send you to a third country, you should be notified that that's going to happen. So adequate notice, um, that there should be burden shifting, that it should be not the burden of the respondent, but the burden of uh, the government to show that, um, uh, uh, to show that, that you'll be, um, uh, that, that you'll be safe there. Um, and then finally, um, and, and finally, an, a full evidentiary hearing where the non-citizen can present her claim in front of an immigration judge um, and seek relief, um, appropriate relief from that third country. So, you know, we, we've gotten to get to know Peter and his story a little bit, you know, just through chatting with you and um, those of you who, you know, decide to read the paper, which everyone listening should, um, we'll learn a lot more about Peter, but could you maybe tell us more about him? Where is he at today? What's his life looking like? Yeah, thanks for asking. And I wish I wish I had, um, you know, better news um, about Peter. Um, I can say uh, that Peter, um, unfortunately, remains detained. Um, it's been more than a year that he's been in detention away from his children. Um and he has, you know, vowed to keep fighting um, his case, um, and we are still litigating his case in front of the immigration judge. So, hoping for for good news in the the weeks um, to come. But that's where we're at right now. Well, I really do hope that you guys hear some good news soon, not just for him, but for his his um, partner and his, you know, American citizen children as well. Thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. Great. Thank you so much for joining me and discussing this paper with me, everyone. Um, you can go and find this very shortly um, through the Indiana Law Review. Um, it will be forthcoming later this spring. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Dallas-Fort Worth, all the way from sunny Taipei. Skin the color of a walnut shell and a baseball cap, holding down her black hair. And she came here after midnight. The hot weather made her feel right at home. Come on in. We haven't slept for weeks. Drink some of this. It'll put color in your cheeks. He drove in from Mexicali. No worse for wear. Money to burn. Time to kill. But five minutes looking in his eyes. And we all knew he was broken pretty bad. So we gave him what we had. We cleared a space for him to sleep in. And we let 
the silence that's our trademark make its presence felt come on in we haven't slept for weeks drink some of this it'll put color in your cheeks Slept for weeks, drink some of this. This'll put color in. 